we're going to continue on in the best sermon ever, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, where we're going to be today. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. The Sperry and Hutchinson Company was founded in 1896. Anybody discovered America at that point yet? Nobody? 1890. Have you ever heard of the Sperry and Hutchinson Company? Oh, don't say that. That was my line. Wow. Perhaps you know its famous trading stamps, Dan Rupp, who just said it. The S&H Green Stamps. Now, you youngsters have no idea what we're talking about, but back in the day, I'm telling you what, back in the day when I was a child, customers would receive the stamps, these green stamps, little green stamps, at checkout counters, you know, of the supermarkets, gas station, other real uh, retailers. The stamps were placed in the booklet. Do you remember the booklet? Put the stamps in there? Some of you do. Some of the, the old timers like, yeah, I'm glad I came to church today. We're talking good old, good old days, right? And we would do that. And I, I would do that too because once you filled up the booklet, you could redeem that booklet for products from their catalog. In fact, one might say you could take that booklet and it was fulfilled for free products. In fact, the company, it was so successful for a while that the company boasted in its heyday at one time that it issued three times more stamps than the United States Postal Service. It was a big deal, right? I, I'm not going to ask the question, but if I was, I would say, do some of you still have something that you fulfilled that booklet with and redeemed? You probably still have it in your house. It probably took you $100 to redeem that thing, fulfill it, and it's a $3.95 fake wood little thing sitting on one of your shelves, I bet. Wow. Did you know, have you ever heard of Amazon? Anybody? Anybody in here? Did you know Amazon recently built a new technology fulfillment center in western Albuquerque? Have you driven out there and seen the thing? Some of you have. Wow. Okay. Listen to this. This comes from uh, this year, in fact, from one of our news stations. Uh, the Amazon fulfillment center here in Albuquerque houses more than 40 million assorted products, including items from 8,700 New Mexico businesses. I kind of like that. It employs now nearly 3,000 workers. In fact, the Amazon Fulfillment Center, it's not the biggest, it's a medium-sized one, but it's big. It is able now to offer one-day shipping to most of the Albuquerque metro. That's fulfillment. Would you agree? Well, today we look at a much different type, kind of fulfillment. If you'll remember, we've been studying, starting in Matthew 5, the best sermon ever, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount and we looked at uh, the Beatitudes. You remember those? The Beatitudes gave us a powerful description of that inner character, that righteousness that believers are to have, that members of the kingdom are to have. And the last two weeks, we saw two vivid metaphors. Do you remember those? Two vivid metaphors about Salt, and last week, light. Very good. And those metaphors and those, that subject really emphasize something for us. As believers, as Christians, it, they emphasize our responsibilities that we have in this world and showed us the effect that our inner righteousness can have on those around us as we get a little salty and we don't hide the little light, but we let it shine. 
Now we arrive at verses 17, 18, 19, and 20, which I believe, along with a number of scholars, to be the interpretive key to the best sermon ever. Many would say that 17 through 20, that's the interpretive key for the entire Sermon on the Mount. In fact, understanding verse 17 is key to the rest of the sermon. You see, let me make this statement. Jesus came to fulfill, you were wondering where we were going with that word, weren't you? Jesus came to fulfill the intention of the Old Testament. Well, what does that mean? That means to bring it to its intended completion. Today, we will see Jesus giving a summary description of the purpose of his ministry, the importance of applying the Word of God in our lives. And so you might have noticed uh, the interesting equation that is the sermon title today. Fill plus full, not full plus fill, but fill plus full equals fulfillment. And the question I have for each one of you today, whether you're here in the room, whether you're watching online, is this today, do you want to be full Do you want to be filled? If so, focus. Focus on obeying the word of God and let God do what only God can do for you today. I was reminded of the fulfillment that God does in the believer's life. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord will circumcise your heart And the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul, so that you will live. And today we're not talking about just the heartbeat and living and breathing, respiration, but we're talking about spiritual life. Well, let's look at these verses 17 through 20. Jesus speaking. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, because of what I just said, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever practices and teaches these commandments i would use the word obey there will be called great in the kingdom of heaven for i tell you unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and pharisees you will never enter the kingdom of heaven wow think about that as we pray lord we're grateful for your scripture, for your words that, that many times jump off the page and just get right into our mind, our consciousness, into our hearts, into our lives, and you do work. And God, I thank you that you are in the business of heart circumcision. I thank you that you do call men and women and boys and girls to come and follow you and to turn to you and to be your disciples. So Lord, help us to understand today and help that understanding not to just be something that goes into our head, but it's something that we use in our everyday life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So let's just break this down. Point number one deals with verse 17, which I think is that key verse in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's what I've entitled, Jesus' Ministry Purpose. Jesus' Ministry Purpose. Can you put yourself into the setting? Put yourself back in those days. The scribes and Pharisees were mentioned in the, in the Scripture. Okay, can you picture, you're, you're, you're sitting there and you're hearing Jesus talk and he's saying these things and it's like, you know what this means? Mind blown? Like your mind keeps getting blown over and over. I mean, that's pretty powerful to say what he just said about the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you'll remember, we'll talk about it in a minute, but they added in well over 600, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, little laws and different things that they added that needed to be done. And here Jesus is saying what he's saying. And because of this, and because of Jesus' ministry, just getting going, but you, you know the rest of the story, as the Gospels uh, continue on and culminate with the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus was constantly accused by the religious leaders, right? He was constantly accused of destroying the law of God, or we might say of minimizing it. Over and over this happens. And here in verse 17, Jesus clears up this misunderstanding. He says, don't assume that I came. In other words, quit doing this. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Interesting. The word destroy is a very strong word here. It means to utterly overthrow, to tear down, to smash to the ground. I like this one. This is a good picture for me. To loosen down like a house or a tent. You ever been in a tent when it was loosened down? <laughs> right? Have you ever tried to put up a tent and you think you had it just right? And then there it goes. So get that picture of destruction in that way. It also could even mean to obliterate completely. It's the same word that's used of the destruction of the temple. It's also used in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And we read this. For we know that if the tent, now this is not talking about a tent you build up, but it's talking about us. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Aren't you grateful? We have a building from God, and it's a house not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. Jesus is clear here. He was clear to that audience. He's clear to us today. He did not, hear me, he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets a direct quote from him yeah but Lamar what are those things basically I think it's the scripture they had at the time talking about scripture the Old Testament you see by saying this Jesus in fact is confirming scripture do you see that he said the law or the prophets that's what they had that was their scripture that they were reading, and he's confirming it. What a great example for us today. Listen, when in doubt, would you confirm Scripture? When in doubt, would you look to Scripture? When you have a decision to make, would you look at Scripture? When you're going to offer advice to someone, would you look at Scripture? How often we go to a book beside the Bible. I'm not against books, all right? Don't, don't come tell me after service, okay? I'm not against authors. God's gifted some of them 
But we go to a book sometime, or we go to a friend. Anybody, anybody ever done that before? Or even a relative, or even a pastor or elder. Go to Scripture. And Jesus, right off the bat, said, Look, I did not come to destroy, destroy the Scripture that you have. Now, of course, we know Jesus did condemn law, did he not? But it was the oral law. It was that scribal law, those things he had. And you remember later on the Gospels, remember all the things that went on? Remember they had one in there, you, can't, you only can take a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath. You remember that? I want to bring that back. Anybody? <laughs> I got a nice uh, chair that you pull a thing and, and it leans back. You know, okay. But they had that. Remember, Jesus and the disciples were... Were, were so hungry and they grabbed some grain you remember that and boy they got in trouble because they broke that scribal law so yes Jesus condemns that he condemns the religious leaders tradition their interpretation they're adding many items to scripture but he does not condemn he does not destroy the law or the prophets Yet we know today, I know today, because I've had many people talk to me about it. Uh, some of you have talked to me about it with your children or grandchildren, this confusion about Old Testament. So confusion comes our way and people ask, does that mean all the laws of the Old Testament apply to us today? Now I'm getting ready to head into deep weeds. And some of you, I see, some of you are bowing up already, all right? But just stay with me a minute. It's, it's a little more simple, I think, than we realize you see, in the Old Testament, what most people don't realize is there were three categories of the law. You remember that? There's ceremonial law, there's civil law, and there's moral law. Number one, ceremonial law. Well, what was that? That's the laws that they have that were related specifically to Israel's worship. The primary purpose of the ceremonial law was to point forward to Jesus Christ. These laws, therefore, are no longer necessary after Jesus' death and resurrection. There's these certain things that you've read and you go, what, what, what? Listen, they pointed to Jesus. Jesus is here. We have the New Testament and so this doesn't apply to us today. You did not come, well, I hope you took a bath or shower, but you did not come to the temple today and outside it have to dip into a pool and get clean, right? That's, what they, that's one of the ones back then. Another thing that fits a couple categories here is I don't think any of you killed a lamb this morning and brought it did you look around did he Does anybody look bloody today no okay so we need to understand ceremonial law it was was for israel's worship and though it helped them to look forward to the messiah jesus christ and praise god the messiah has come amen and has shed his blood for us and paid the price for our sin what a great time we're living in some of us walk around and we go, man, we're living in hard times. We're living in a great time. How would you like to be in a time back then? I don't even like lamb that much, okay? It's crazy. But I want you to hear something. Jesus was often accused by the Pharisees of violating ceremonial law. And what I want you to know today is while we are no longer, as New Testament Christians, bound by the ceremonial laws, I want you to hear this. 
the principles behind them still apply to us today. Are you hearing me? We still have principles to love and to worship only our holy God, creator God. So they're, they're still there. Let me read to you Matthew 22, uh, 37 through 39. Matthew 22, 37 through 39. This is when an expert of the law, Jesus spoke, and then an expert of the law spoke up. You can figure out who, who that probably was. And here's Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now we know those, right? Jesus is directly quoting from the law and the prophets, from Scripture, from the Old Testament, to this person who is talking, I think, about more law than just that. These laws that they came up with and certain rules and regulations they have. But let's not miss the final verse here. Are you ready? All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. You see, Jesus is using direct quotes from the Old Testament law to help explain to people who are struggling with the law. So let me wrap up and say the ceremonial law, it points Israel and their worship to the coming Messiah, and it doesn't apply to us, but the principles of worshiping the one true God still apply to us today, even though we know that the Messiah has come. Jesus Christ has come. The second uh, law is the civil law, and it applied to daily living in Israel. I want to just simplify this a little bit. This law was to help identify and set apart the Israelites. Have you ever read in the Old Testament and you see a certain law and they're supposed to do it, it applies to their daily living, and you go, that's kind of peculiar. Anybody? Yeah. Why those peculiar things? Because it helped to set them apart from others because they were God's chosen people. Now, I would say to you as well, all these guidelines do not apply to our world today. Don't come tell me they do, because we're going to sit down and go through some of those, and I'm going to ask you, did you do that today? Did you do that this past week? And you're going to go, um, well, no. No, no. They, they were civil law. It was their daily uh, living. It, it was guidelines. It doesn't apply to us today. However, listen closely again. The principles behind them are timeless and should guide our conduct. So our conduct should be being guided by that. And of course, the greatest example is Jesus and how he did that. But this is the one I want to get to, number three, the moral law. Have you heard of it? You know all about it, don't you? What's the most famous example of Old Testament moral law, God's moral law? The Big Ten, right? Are you with me? Are you with me? The Big Ten. You see... The moral law is the direct command of God and requires strict obedience. The moral law reveals the nature and will of God. Take a look at it. Always reveals God's nature, who God is, what he wills for people to do, his creation to do. And these still apply to us today. Well, let's think about it for a minute. How about stealing? Lying, all types of sexual sin, coveting, 
etc., etc. We could go on and on. They're still wrong today. In fact, did you know the New Testament confirms the Old Testament? Well, nine of the ten it does. The New Testament, all but one of the ten commands of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The only one that is not, do you know what it is? There's a lot of confusion about it today. The Sabbath. Sabbath. Okay? Totally different. Do a study on that and you'll see that. Only the Sabbath law is not present in the New Testament. You see, God's moral law is still the standard for godly living and shows that I cannot measure up to God's standard. That's what I want you to see about the moral law. It still applies today. Christ fulfilled everything, brought it to its completion, and today God's moral law still applies to us. And in fact, as we look at it, it does not save us. Amen? We remember that? We're not works-based. It doesn't save us. But what does it do? It compels me when I see it, when I try to follow it. It compels me to the cross of Christ. It throws me at the feet of Jesus. And I hope it does for you as well. It should. Because it's life-changing, it's transformational. To be driven to the cross of Jesus is a blessed and special thing. And I discover something, church. The only way I can fulfill the law, God's moral law, is by accepting the only one who can fulfill it and who did fulfill it. You know his name, don't you? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus' statement is transformational, and it's quite uh, mind-blowing. He says, I, I did not come to dis demolish the law, but to fulfill it. So we looked at that word destroy. Let's look at the word uh, fulfill for a minute. It means to give full meaning, to fill full, to fill up. Now you know where I got the sermon title from. The word fulfill means to Fill full, fulfill, fill full. Say that a few times, all right? But let's get the picture of that. Now, as we read the Gospels, we have the entire complete revelation of God, the 66 books in our Bible, in the New Testament, and these four Gospels, besides what Paul and everyone else commentated on, what we see over and over is Jesus doing exactly that. Do we not? The next day from this, the next week, and the next week, and the next week and month and year, Jesus is fulfilling all of this. He came to fulfill it, to fill full. Think about it for a minute. Whether it's his fulfillment of prophecies. Have you ever done a study on that? Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies from their scripture, the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills. Or maybe his payment for our sin, fulfillment. Or his perfect performance, Jesus Fills it up, does he not? His is the standard. He lived the perfect life. He knew no sin, but became sin for us. Well, we'll see more of this law later in the later verses of the best sermon ever. So we're going to see some more of this come up. And Jesus is going to take it a step further every time. Oh, you, your law says this? Let me tell you about this. So we look forward to that. So let's try to get rid of that confusion, can we? The question is not so much which law and all that. The question is God's moral law, all of its, the principles all apply to us, but this moral law, which we can never obey completely, we can't fulfill it, is fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, 
the one who paid the price for our sin, the one who desperately desires to enter into uh, eternal, personal relationship with us if we will repent and turn to him. He fills it up. Let's move on to verse 18. God's word is preserved. I don't want you to miss this. For I assure you, maybe your version says truly, truly, or verily, verily. It means, hey, dummy, you better really pay attention here. I am saying something right now. I assure you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass the law until all things are accomplished. What in the world is he talking about there? Jesus is talking about Scripture, the Word. He's now referring to the power and preservation of Scripture. You see, that word preservation is a word that's left the 21st century Christian's vocabulary, but it's so important that we see the preservation of Scripture of God's Word. It's so important. I want you to think about that for a minute. And Jesus' language here is compelling. Do you see that when he talks about the smallest letter? He's referring to the Hebrew yod, which kind of looks a little bit like an apostrophe. That's pretty small, isn't it? But Matthew wrote in Greek, do you remember what word he used there? He used the smallest Greek letter when he translated that, iota. Maybe some of you perhaps have a footnote in your Bible and you look down and it says iota. Well, that's the smallest Greek letter. He's talking about the Hebrew yod here. Did you know there's approximately, I, I didn't count, okay? Somebody counted. Some guy that has time on his hands counted. Don't you love scholars? You wonder what they do sometimes, but 66,420 yods in the Old Testament. So when he says the smallest letter, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And then he goes on with his language to say the stroke of a letter. That's the Hebrew seraph. You've heard of a seraph. Or uh, some people call it an extended horn. It's a tiny extension on some Hebrew letters that distinguishes them from similar Hebrew letters. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I don't want to mess this up too bad. But it's kind of hard to explain. The way I would say in English, and it's not tiny enough, but take a capital F. Can everybody picture that in your mind right now? And with a little stroke... The stroke of a letter, draw a line under that capital F, and what does it become? A capital, you're not following me? A capital E. Okay, write it down on your paper there, okay? Is that right? That gives us a kind of idea. But this, when he said this, it was just the extended horn. It's just this tiny extension, but it distinguishes them from other letters. Okay, so what, Lamar? I hate stuff like this. I know some of you do. But I say, yes, sir, so what? This is a big deal. Jesus is saying the word of God cannot be broken. It can't be changed. Something, it can't pass away. Are you seeing that there? Look at verse 18 again and think about it in that way. For I assure you, truly, truly, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law 
until all things are accomplished. He's talking about Scripture there. Not, there, not the scribal law. He's talking about Scripture. Not even a tiny, tiny bit of it will be changed, will go away. That brings great comfort to me. What about you guys? It is so easy for us to have a high view of Scripture. You've heard me say that before. The liberal has a low view of Scripture. Some people try to change Scripture because it doesn't just jive with what I believe or what I'm thinking. No, it's easy to have a high view of Scripture, God's revelation completely and fully to us because not even the tiniest of the tiniest of it will pass away. See, Jesus is teaching about the inspiration of Scripture and the, have you heard this word, immutability of it. That's another word that's left our uh, vernacular that's so important. Think about that for a minute. God's Word cannot be broken. You see, to change a small point of one letter, therefore, could do what? Vary the meaning of the Word and destroy its sense. And I remind you again, God has preserved his powerful word for us. And Jesus' words confirm it. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. You've read that before, haven't you? Matthew 24, 35. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Scripture is consistent. God's word is accurate. God's word is reliable. Here's what I want you to hear today. Down even to the smallest, tiniest of detail. It's reliable and it's accurate. So many people spend significant portions of their life trying to go to Scripture and discover where it might be wrong or where it might lead down a wrong path instead of rejoicing in the joyfulness of Scripture and how reliable it is and how accurate it is. What great comfort and purpose comes. That's so positive. Church, I want to challenge you and me today. Let us join in the battle for the Bible today. There's still a battle going on. No book has been so attacked as the Bible Yet, no book has survived so well. Amen? Now, I'm going to give you some stats. Are you ready? To show you how reliable and accurate God's Word is. Stay with me. In the New Testament, 5,750 manuscripts we have. 24,000 fragments. This is an ancient book, is it not? You recall the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in Qumran and 1947, they discovered a copy of the Old Testament a thousand years older than the previous copy that was on hand. All the way back to, are you ready? 150 B.C. Virtually identical. Now let's talk about scribes for a minute because I had some people tell you, well, there's got to be scribal errors because th these guys wrote it down and then they wrote it down and then they wrote it down. I'm like, first of all, I want to tell them that seems more reliable than the internet. <laughs> it's another story. But I want you to just, in case you've wondered that, let me give you comfort in that. The scribes began training at age 14. 
So hardly any of us in here could be scribes. Because training began at 14. Guess when it was completed? At age 40. This, these are the guys that are not writing scripture, but transcribing it, if you will. And it was so precise, they had to have 37 letters per line. It's not like what we have in our English Bibles today. And the distance between the letters and the spacing had to be exact. In fact, if a scribe, as it was looked, as he was transcribing, if it was looked and found to have an error, guess what happened? Well, you just hit backspace, right? That's what we do. Tear it up and start over. The Bible has a unified message. Oh, it gets better. The Bible is unified even though there's 66 books written over 1,600 years, 40 different authors on three continents in three languages, yes? Three languages, people with varied backgrounds, writing about very controversial subjects, yet they all agree. Have you ever looked at something in Scripture and then just kept looking at how Scripture commentates on it, how Scripture... uh, fulfills scripture, how you look at it, and it all goes together. This is our Bible. Even the most academic person could look at this and say, there is no other document or book in our world, in the history of mankind, that could be like this. And we smile and say, you're right, because God did it. It's not that mystical. No, I don't need faith because I have some problem in my life. No, it is real and it is true. And the Creator did that. So let us join in the battle of the Bible. Let us fight traditions which add to God's Word. Do you know there's traditions today that add to God's Word? You might as well be a Pharisee, a modern-day Pharisee. Let us fight the elevation of reason above revelation. We face that today. Listen, we have to be in the battle when it comes to reason above revelation. You see, liberalism judges the Bible by the measure of human reasoning alone. It assumes that the Bible must be mistaken if I think otherwise. Well, this doesn't fit my truth. So let us fight the elevation of this reason above revelation and let us fight the rejection of the Bible's sufficiency. Have you ever heard that phrase before? The Bible is sufficient. This is our big modern-day error, I think, today, as I look at theologians or church leaders or society in general, is this rejection of the Bible's sufficiency. It's a modern-day error of many evangelicals, I think, who agree, they agree with everything Jesus taught in the sermon, but they still undermine the Bible's authority by presuming that somehow the Bible is just not adequate. For the work demanded of Christians today. The Bible just doesn't understand what is needed today. God, help us. God's word is sufficient for everything, period. Exclamation point. Well, let's move on. Jesus in that one verse really puts scripture right up here. And then we go on to, though, there's something besides just scripture or just theory. We get to verse 19, and he says, Therefore, whoever breaks one of these and teaches people to do it, it's going to be the least. But whoever practices and teaches it, it's going to be called great. 
Here, I love, I, you know, I like practical stuff. Jesus puts practice before preaching or teaching. Do you see that? I'm going to tell you, it's not a very good teacher or preacher, and I've been guilty of it before, who cannot put practice before preaching. Right? Preach on thou shalt not steal when the person's stealing, cheating on income taxes, whatever. You see, you see what I'm saying? I think you guys get the idea there. So he, he's like, no, there's practice to go before just what we're saying here. Oh, that we would all do this. You see, I think the Christian witness has been hampered because we believe these things, we preach and teach these things, but our life does not always line up with it in our practice. Yes, I know we're sinners and we sin, but sometimes there's habitual or real evident or, evident or overt non-practice to what we're preaching and teaching. You see, the teacher must apply the doctrine he is teaching to himself before he is qualified to teach others. I cannot stand here you today and talk about the preservation of God's word, the immutability, the sufficiency of it, unless that has been appropriated in my life, or I'd just be a hypocrite. And he's getting to the last verse, the scribes and the Pharisees. You know about them, don't you? Of all the things they failed in, that's what they failed in. The scribes and Pharisees. Practice before preaching. They were good at, you've heard it said, blah, 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 blah. You've heard it said, blah, 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 blah. And they weren't even doing it. Listen to the second part of Matthew 23, 3. Jesus is talking about the scribes and Pharisees. It's one phrase, are you ready? They don't practice what they teach. Direct quote. They don't practice what they teach. You see, I think verse 19 is so important for us because verse 19 is the measure of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Note, whoever teaches Scripture to others and does not lead them to break it will be honored and distinguished by God. Do you see that? It'd be great. So that's the positive I want you to see. I mean, we see the negative, the least. We understand that. But look at that great positive there. See, our standard should be both personal obedience to God's word and then the communication or the teaching of that word to others. And scripture tells us what? To go and make disciples. This is so practical here because practice comes before preaching. It is easy for me or anyone to stand up in front of a group and say, scripture says it's a great commission, go and make disciples. Listen. What's the definition of a disciple? Disciples make disciples. Who are you investing in today that they might be a disciple of Christ and that they might grow and guess what? Disciple another disciple. Do you see how it works? So God's commands must be practiced and we see the results there. Well, let's finish up with verse 20. We'll be done. God's kingdom priority. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice we're right back at the same subject? Sermon on the Mount? Righteousness? Do you see how it keeps popping up over and over? Jesus demands a righteousness 
exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Can you see the mind blown there? On the outward appearance, these guys can't compete with these guys. There is no way. And Jesus says, no, your righteousness must exceed their righteousness. It was a shocking statement for them. And what we must know today is this. Unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not today be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. But we will remain forever in the kingdom of darkness. In other words, the righteousness, this righteousness, is the difference between heaven and hell. Would you agree with that? Do you remember the progression? The poor in spirit... When we discover that we are in abject spiritual poverty and that leads us to mourn and sorrow over our sin and other sins and and then we're meek or we're humble, we're gentle that comes out of having that in our life and then that causes us to hunger. Do you remember? Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for all of God's righteousness. And that leads us to be merciful because we receive that mercy from God and pure in heart and peacemakers. And even when we're persecuted for, there's the word again, righteousness, we understand that we can be glad and rejoice because our reward is great in heaven. Do you remember what Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels? He called them hypocrites. Do you remember that? We know what that is. He called them blind guides. Now picture that for a minute. Do you want some guide guiding you somewhere? Uh, let's say we go up to Mesa Verde. And we're going up these ladders and different, the ruins and stuff. Do you want a blind guide to be leading you? Probably not. He calls them that. He even calls them whitewashed tombs. Do you remember that? He is just laying it on to them. You see, Jesus is not calling for more quantitative righteousness. Well, what does that mean, Lamar? It means he's not calling for more rules and regulations. What Jesus is calling for is a different righteousness, a different qualitative righteousness. He wants that repentance and that relationship over religion. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. Romans 10, 3 and 4. Because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. And I love this line. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let us not be people who give God good works instead of giving God our hearts. Let us not give God only a part of us. Instead, let us give God all of us. Let us not worship and just do just enough good to satisfy our consciences Make us feel comfortable and acceptable to God. Let us remember what God is actually after. You. Me. All of me. 
all of you. How can this be? Well, after all, let us not forget, Jesus is the one who said it and did it. He is the one who fulfills everything. Why would I not want to give my all to the one who is the fulfiller? Let me close with a few more verses from Romans. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you know what it says, you will be saved. One who believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Where are you today? Is that your story? Is that what happened in your life? If not, why not? If not, why not? Why not turn to the one who fulfills everything? Why not turn to the great fulfiller? Why be burdened or nitpick little things that get you off track? Why not just turn to the Messiah, the one who did not destroy Scripture, but fulfilled it? I say to you again, we live in a great time. We live in a time where we know that Jesus died, God's rescue plan for our sin, and conquered sin and death, the grave, the devil, everything when he rose on the third day. Amen? We live during that time, and we even know the rest of the story. Go ahead and look at the very back of your Bible sometime and notice who wins in the end. It may not seem like it in 2022, but God wins. Christian, let me challenge you to put your practice before your teaching, to really believe and understand, to really trust. And if you're here today or watching online and, and, and you have not done that, repent, run from your sin, your way of life to Jesus and watch what he will do in your life. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would just help us to understand and apply to our lives. God, I pray through these next moments of response time that you would do a work in our life. We read about circumcision of the heart, that you might do a little surgery in our lives. You might reveal to us maybe something where we doubt or something that uh, we're not all in on. And God, that we would understand that you and your word are all sufficient and all powerful. You have preserved it for us, and it is your revelation to us. So God, speak to us. Challenge us in whatever way you want. And God, we pray for those who are not believers, who are not disciples. They would turn to you who fulfills it all and receive salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.